0: and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I talk with other environmental educators about their experiences, their practices, and their perspectives on helping people to reconnect with nature. Today, we're talking about all those bits of paper we give out in the hopes that they'll help people to make the most of their visit, or those papers that we hope will help kids to get the most out of learning experiences. These can be in the form of self-guided trails with questions and challenges, worksheets or forms for recording notes, even just blank paper for drawing pictures of plants and animals. But what happens after the activity is done? We all hope that people will take those sheets home with them as memories of their day, but we always have that worry that they'll just end up in the nearest bin, or worse, blowing around our sights. Today, I'm joined by Charlotte, and we're going to be talking about facilitating an art workshop and helping people be proud of their work so that they don't just want to take their work home, but they're proud to take home what they've created as a keepsake from a wonderful experience. Then, at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing a few more ideas for how we can make those bits of paper part of meaningful experiences that people want to remember. Hello, Charlotte. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hi, Victor. Thank you so much for having me back here again.
0: Before we jump into this topic, would you be able to introduce yourself for us?
1: Yes, of course. So um, hello, listeners. My name is Charlotte and I am a science educator at the Natural History Museum. And I'm also the digital learning officer at the Museum of Brands. And in addition to that, in the evenings and some weekends, I also do pop-up painting events for usually adults and they're social painting events really big in America called sip and paint events and the idea is you might have you know a glass of wine and a paintbrush and you'll recreate a piece from art history in about two hours so I facilitate those workshops as well.
0: I've been asking a lot of the guests on the show uh, a bit more about themselves so I wanted to ask how did you get interested in nature?
1: oh very interesting I think for me um it's been a lifelong thing so I can't give you a defining interesting moment because uh I think my parents very much tried to bring us up in nature as much as we could we kind of live in the suburbs of London so we'd always do you know long country walks and just days spent in parks and the woods and things like that so I've always just had that affinity with nature, Uh, always had pets, huge dog lover. So I've always been just a complete advocate for like animals and against animal cruelty. And I've been a lifelong vegetarian because of that. Uh, my parents did uh, start me on fish for protein reasons. And then I think I had a profound moment in a fish and ship shop when I was maybe seven or something, feeling a little bit high and mighty. And I made the bold decision. No, <laughs> mom and mom and dad, I'm not going to eat fish anymore. And that's what I became a vegetarian. Um, so yeah, and then that's continued into my adult life. And now a passion environmentalist as well and yeah always seeking kind of plastic free or low waste alternatives to kind of products and everyday items i use
0: i think for for a lot of people they that that's very similar where they won't maybe have any individual specific moment but they might have moments that stood out to them uh but what i'm curious about is you, you mentioned having your adults around when you when you think of like really positive moments in and around nature when you were younger are adults or your parents sort of in the picture are you tending to be on your own what's your sense of that
1: oh it's a little bit of both I suppose I do think there is a, a link with upbringing whether you are going to have that positive relationship with nature so parts when I you know memories of family days out with my parents and my brother to like trent park or any of the kind of green spaces um and they just have that you know golden hue to them that i think childhood memories can do and it's got all the kind of lovely connections to family and love and summer and those kind of patronus happy memories so adults definitely involved with that but there are also those times when i'm just you know, pootling around in my garden, um, looking at the plants and insects, and feeding ants honey and stuff like that. Also, have this vivid memory of um, digging around in the soil when I was quite young. I can't remember, must you know, five to eight. All the years kind of blur together. And um, yeah, I was, I suppose, doing some kind of archaeology because I was just digging around, and then I came across this strange kind of seventies vase or like container um, that was just dug in the soil and I was like oh wow look at this amazing find so you know got that element to nature as well and I went on to study classics and archaeology weirdly enough but yeah so some of them are definitely self-led learning experiences and some are definitely you know connected to my parents and other adult figures.
0: I think that's such a big theme in a lot of these um, conversations I've been having with other people that oftentimes These really sort of positive memories of nature, they're not really directed. It's just sort of noodling around in nature. It's often not, oh, I had this one amazing like science lesson experience out in nature.
1: Yeah, it's got a lot of kind of rose tinted memories for me because it's me and my childhood dog Peggy just hanging around in the garden and yeah, with my brother. So it's definitely got a lot of nostalgia as well, nature for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. So now you also do these art workshops for adults. How long have you been doing those? Could you tell us a bit more about doing these workshops?
1: So I started that, oh, it must have been 2017, I think. So I've been doing it for quite a long time and been able to see the lots of different angles to the business, which has been really great because I I did a lot of the kind of social media work and work on the website um, and, you know, Saw a bit of an insider view of how to market these kind of things to our target demographic. And then obviously presenting and hosting the events has just been great fun as well. Um, it, at a really good event with a really good group, it will just be like you're at a little party and you just happen to be doing a bit of painting with a microphone on your head. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that sounds lovely. Um, and you've been doing a few of these over the course of this year as well. Have they been virtual events?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's been a mixture. Um, uh, they have been mostly virtual, <laughs> inevitably, this past year. And then they did start doing a few in the kind of summer months when things loosened up in London a little bit last year. But I've been doing loads of the events by Zoom, and it has been the kind of virtual workshop thing that I know we're seeing pop up all over the place. Um, and that's been a very different experience. Generally, I find um, it's a more muted experience because th- it becomes a more relaxed you know, atmosphere, if you're just in your home pottering away. I suppose it's a bit hard to recreate the woo party thing that I think some of our live events had. But I think maybe that calmness is much more in keeping with what people needed as well.
0: Uh, Have you found that there? are benefits to the the virtual delivery versus in person because it's a different medium and often we can get a bit down on on these mm. virtual stream things you know it's not the same as live but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's worse than a live event if you see what i mean uh,
1: yeah i completely agree i think a lot of people uh, or you know the loudest people will be sort of oh i want to go back to normal i want to you know be back in clubs or parties or these big loud environments but the different kinds of people that this kind of lifestyle maybe possibly on the more introverted spectrum might really love this more kind of working from home digital life and it might really suit their temperament and personality and you do find these digital sessions it kind of opens up the accessibility to different kinds of people that might not like these big you know, sometimes rowdy social environments. Um, So I think it's been a really useful thing for that kind of person. It's also just amazingly convenient for me as a facilitator. The fact that, you know, I need only about kind of 15 minutes to just get my paints and my palette and my bits and pieces together together. And then I can just start working is amazing and it has kind of ruined me for live events a little bit now because the thought of coming back at 1230 at night uh, on a weekday after an event doesn't feel as appealing as, you know, logging on at six o'clock and then logging off at, you know, eight, eight thirty and then oh, a little bit TV. And, you know, you could actually have some of the evening left to yourself. So convenient for facilitators as well as, you know, customers, as I think.
0: And different, uh, and you mentioned different demographic, and I imagine people are also from a wider geographic area.
1: Yeah, yeah, great point. We've had, um, I think we've had some kind of parties for people that were England-based as well as based in America. So that's quite lovely that they can share a kind of social experience, which is something very new that hasn't been, I don't know, really possible. Of course, Zoom has been going before the lockdown, but these kind of big, you know, virtual transatlantic experiences I think are fairly new and that's quite lovely that they can all have some kind of shared family time.
0: Could you talk us through what does one of these in-person um, pop-up workshops look like?
1: So if you're the operational lead you have to go and collect the kit and that's enough obviously canvases and enough paint and napkins for the whole group and then take that kit to the venue, which is maybe a bar or a hotel. And then it's the kind of setup stage. So you'd meet the artist at that location usually about an hour before the start of the event. And then it's all the setup, moving the tables around, getting the tablecloths on, uh, napkins, palettes, paints, canvases, easels, da, da, da. get it all set up, ready to go. And then you'll start receiving the guests and get them all sat down in their location. And then it's, you know, you do the whole fun starting event and getting everyone hyped up. Uh, Some of the events include drinks as well. So you can get the the drink orders in and then you deliver the session. And that involves the kind of first half of the session, which is generally getting the background down as the artist. You've kind of got to just get the block colours in to prepare your kind of composition almost because you don't have a pencil stage with these events. So you need to use the paint to block out the different parts of your composition. And then there's a little break. People can go get new drinks and just have a wander around looking at what everyone else created and then the second half is generally the kind of detail stage so as the artist that's going to be when I add the depth with the darker colors and the light with the highlights on top at the end Um, and that is the general format then everyone goes around at the end looks at everyone's finished pieces and has that kind of chatty social element before we do a big group photo with everyone holding up their masterpieces before saying goodbye. We really try and avoid the fancy art terms even as much as proportion and perspective and foreshadowing, all these kind of terms which everyone's got some kind of familiarity with but can feel a little bit intimidating for a social art experience. It's not about creating um, a replica. It, it's not a photocopying class. It is just about people enjoying the paint. And we happen to be basing it on Van Gogh's Starry Night or Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe or whatever it is for that night. It it doesn't matter what you create. We encourage people to kind of go off-piste as well. But that does mean, you know, bits technically get left out um, inevitably because that's not the emphasis.
0: Yeah. I think we can all have those really perfectionist tendencies, you know, even with, with young kids, um, where what you have in your head, you're not able to get it down on the paper. That can become really frustrating.
1: Yeah, it is for the um, audience members as well. And the problem is the human form is very unforgiving because we are biologically designed and trained to recognize human faces and human bodies and that's you know obviously an evolutionary thing it's a social thing that is just hardwired into us so it's a little bit easier to fudge a tree if you're painting a tree or you know it doesn't really matter what shape a cloud is because they can really be anything
0: how do you get people around that little roadblock? So, you know, when we're doing stuff with kids, um, if we're having them do a drawing of an animal or do a drawing of a plant, you know, they can see the thing in front of them. And if they can't translate it the way they want to on a paper, often they want to scrunch it up and leave it behind. So how do how do you get adults to get around that and just kind of accept and, and as you say, be proud of the work that they have produced? Um, given all the limitations in in the the format?
1: I think humour is good to diffuse any kind of tensions or self-flagellating that might be going on so something i'll say when i'm walking around events sometimes is if i'm feeling a bit of a funny atmosphere from a few of the visitors or um customers is you know uh, let me know if anyone needs anything advice recommendations a shoulder to cry on and then you know that will just diffuse the situation a little bit sometimes uh you generally get a laugh and then they'll be like yeah to be fair this isn't that, as big a deal as I was possibly feeling like it was. So humour can be important, having that kind of, yeah, those communication skills to break down some of the nervousness or anxiety that's happening about someone's piece of work. Uh, another thing I'd use is just encouraging how special uniqueness is and individuality is you know something i emphasize at the end of the session when we're all taking our group photo is have a look around everybody you know look how different and unique everyone's are and it it really says something about all of your different personalities and um you know i try and emphasize you know this was a blank canvas before you sat down and now look at what you created and also just encouraging them not to feel like they have to copy me
0: that's something that definitely i've seen in a lot of the work that i do with kids is you know if you have an example the kids will try to replicate exactly that example because they think oh that's this is exactly what i need to do so yeah my strategy for that is often my example always needs to be a little bit sloppy or incomplete i only take them the first few steps and then the kids need to you know carry it on the rest of the way so that They've got the base there. And then after that, it's, it's up to them and it's okay. You know, they can use it as a launching pad to do whatever.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great idea. I think um, it's nice for them to have something to aim for at our events as well. So Mm -hmm. um, I know some people strictly time themselves for about two hours when they're creating their demonstration painting, because they're like, you know, that's the time people have. But I don't know. I, I like creating as close a replica as I can. So I think I spent a bit more than two hours doing my Starry Night, for example. Um, and in my head, I'm like, I think then it's I don't know if it's closer to the original artwork, then it gives them a closer idea of what they want to aim for. And it kind of has that aspiration to it as well.
0: So one of the things you mentioned is going around emphasizing the um, that individuality, but but also, as you mentioned just now, like having something aspirational to aim towards. And I find that that's a really delicate balance mm. to to hit, you know, like what you did is great, but also having a specific something to kind of aim for, hitting that balance of what mm. you did is great, but also recognizing the ways in which... Uh, it it can be improved yeah
1: it's so hard it is and I find um sometimes it's something I hear a lot is I'm like oh my gosh you know I love what you did with the trees there that's like, it's taking great shape how what are you thinking about it and they'll always say oh but it doesn't look anything like yours oh yours is so much better and I, I'm sort of like, well, of course it is. You know, I've done this for, you know, most of my life. I've been practicing these techniques all these life. Like, I've studied art, and it's a skill that I've developed and honed and studied, so that I am good at it. People still take that as a reason to think badly about themselves.
0: I like the question that you you asked of this hypothetical person. Like, what are you thinking of with that tree? Because mm. it that's a really nice way of getting the person to talk about how they feel about their own piece of work and i think that's something that's really important about helping kids or anyone to really mm. take pride in their work it reinforces that oh they're the artist they have their own thoughts about it you know yeah. what what do you think about it are are you super proud of it if you're yeah. not so happy with it getting them to pinpoint like what what is, is it about their work that they don't quite like because um yeah. If it's something new to the person that they're doing, they're doing it for the first time or first few times, you're not used to thinking through what actually is the nature of the problem and, and how can I fix it? You know, As you mentioned, you've been through lots of training in art school. So you've got this like list of problem-solving mechanisms to work through
1: definitely i think um, you touched on an interesting thing that i know we always refer to our uh, classes and school children as scientists after they've sort of done one of, one of our workshops and in a similar way we're always at the end of our events we say you know <laughs> congratulations to 27 newborn artists who have started their career with us today and it is that emphasis that what they've created is meaningful and worthwhile even if it isn't a photocopy replica of munches scream or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's interesting that you mentioned as well about just making them look at their pace. And by doing that, they'll maybe appreciate parts of it, but they might also look at it with that critical eye, which does get kind of developed within a two hour session and be able to think about, actually, I really like this brushstroke I used uh, in the top right hand corner, I'm going to experiment with using that brushstroke and technique all the way through. And you'll see them kind of grow in confidence throughout the session.
0: So uh, in these workshops, what, what proportion of people tend to take their work home with them? Do you get people who leave their work behind?
1: Yeah, so we do get some people that leave their work behind. We do encourage people to take them away, partly because then it's it's not up to us to, you know, decide what to do with them. Um, because the cleanup stage can be fairly <laughs> elongated, especially if uh, they've been really enjoying their pain in a bit of a Jackson Pollock way. Um, but generally speaking, I'd say most of them take them away because they'll generally have that pride in what they've made and it is a nice memory of a fun night. Um, Some people will leave them. We do get a lot of kind of posting online throughout the event so then I suppose they've already got a copy somewhere. They don't necessarily need the real thing. Every other event maybe one to two people don't take them and it can be a bit of a slippery slope as well so if one person decides they're just going to leave it then and people get the idea and then you'll find the whole you know table of four have left it or the whole group have left it which is understandable like we get some kind of party groups whose birth it's their birthday or hen party or something and I think they've got you know a booking somewhere else after the event so they're not sure if a painting would be the best thing to lug around for the rest of the night.
0: That's that's funny. Yeah, they've got a really long night ahead of them. They don't want to carry around wet acrylic paint, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've actually had an amazing story where someone, one of our customers, <laughs> was getting the tube back, and there's something I've done a lot. Uh, you'll just carry it out and about because, you know, it's just the easiest way to carry it, especially if I haven't brought my portfolio. Someone offered to buy a customer's painting that they saw just them walking around with it, and I think they sold it for like 50 quid or something.
0: That's a a very interesting point, actually, about um, if you want kids or people or anyone to take stuff away with them, it helps if they can actually take it away right away. Mm. If they have to leave it behind to dry, you Mm. will almost inevitably end up with some proportion of uh, stuff that just never gets picked up because they forget about it or, you know, they're – it just – puts that little thought in their mind of like, oh, if I put this in my bag, I'm going to get paint all over my bag.
1: Yeah, g- good point. Actually, we get a lot of questions about do we offer plastic bags and stuff? Because that will obviously mm. make it easier to take home. But we generally don't. And that's a couple of reasons. It's a you know waste element and also... um. Uh, acrylic paint it generally unless you're using really really thick paint it will only take you know two to five minutes to dry to that kind of plastic form Um, Mm -hmm. but if you have you've been using really blodgy paint if you're doing all the you know big thick paint techniques with some impressionistic paintings then is the risk that you're going to smudge that top layer? So, generally, it's safer just to hold it by the kind of back wooden frame of the canvas until it's completely dry. But yeah, we do get requests for plastic bags because I think it's that ease of taking something home which can affect people.
0: Yeah, so definitely something to consider if you're wanting people to take. What you know, whatever bit of work they produced home with them is how. how are you expecting them to take it home? That's how a good it, point.
1: Yeah, how's it wrapped up? Is it presented in a way that is pleasing? I suppose whether that is a, a a themed bag or a tote bag or something with a nice print on it. I think that makes it a bit more appealing. So the carrying is part of the fun
0: almost. One of the things that I've been thinking of in in thinking about this topic and with work that we have. Um, kids or families or schools do is is the amount of time that they've invested in something also has an impact on whether they want to take it home or not. For instance, just a, just a painting on a piece of paper, and then people want to leave them behind for it to dry. A lot more people will then leave those paintings behind because it hasn't taken the kid or the family very long to produce that painting. But on the other side, if I've done a, a very similar thing, workshop and we've done um, making uh, flower pot bird feeders like fatball bird Mm. feeders and what they've done is I've had kids paint a flower pot to look like a bird or really anything but the example ones I've done are are often birds which is kind of funny so you have this flower pot shaped robin or blue tit or something Um, and when people spend the time on that you know they can spend uh in, in painting a, a piece of paper, they might spend 10, 15 minutes on that. But in this other flower pot craft, they can spend half an hour, 45 minutes working on that because they're taking a lot more time and care into it. And with that activity, you you get like 99% of people will come back and pick it up. And sometimes if they have forgot it, they'll actually come back days later and be like, I forgot this thing here. Is it still here? you know if if you put more effort into something you're more likely to want to keep it
1: yeah definitely and i think um acrylic paint is good for that because you can just layer it up because it dries so quickly if you've made a mistake you can essentially just paint over it with white paint and you're back to a blank canvas um it, it will be a bit you know layered and textured looking but you can work with that And I think that makes more people want to take them home. But I think we get a lot more paintings left behind if we use watercolours because it's just so much less forgiving. And once you've got a smudge where you don't want a smudge, then that's kind of that. Um, And so there wouldn't be those easy fixes of, oh, that's fine. Do you know what? If you don't like that bit, just cover it in white paint and then go over the top. We wouldn't be able to do that. So I think, yeah, medium is important.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Are the errors fixable? If we go back to walking around during the workshop and just kind of encouraging people to take more pride in the work, are there any other kinds of approaches? You mentioned like taking a bit of a humorous approach so Mm. that mistakes or things don't match up, Mm. you know, they're not so big a deal. Uh, Mm. And then you mentioned um, being supportive of helping people see how they can fix something that they see is an error are there any other kind of things that you tend to say to people as you go around
1: i think praise and positivity goes a long way as well because um the thing is if you're you know nose to nose with a canvas you don't necessarily stand back and look at the whole thing and with a lot of genres of art like impressionism they're designed to be viewed from afar Even encouraging people to stand back and have a look at their painting has a kind of, you know, encourages that level of admiration of, oh, I've done this. And also just finding something to compliment. You know, I love those colour choices. I think you've done a great job, um, you know, on that bridge oh, I love that you've done your own thing and put a little dog running through the forest. That's really sweet. Um, Just picking up on some of the playful elements in people's paintings or just some of the choices they've made in a complimentary way. And it's not just, you know, lip service because, you know, it's true. Like, I think that's that's a lovely shade of purple you've got anything like that will just be reassuring and comforting to a customer um and yeah i think humor as well as if they seem like they're laughing at themselves um you can have a little bit of a tease sometimes as well so we've had some people that just really respond to that you know they're being a bit playful about it so yeah you can be a bit playful about it as well um I think it's just reading the customer what they need if they're looking a little bit highly strong and nervous and kind of sad, then they might need a bit of a softer tone and maybe encouragement of how to improve bits that they don't like. Um, So, yeah, it's just responding to the customer, really
0: that's so important is the is that feedback and and what type of feedback and yeah. it can be really challenging to figure out okay is this someone who's going to respond well to humor or mm. oh my gosh if i make a joke about it is that going to like totally shatter mm. them that can be really difficult your points about Finding something specific to make feedback on, that's something that's so important Mm. because it really shows that you're paying attention to the work that they're doing.
1: Yeah, it's Um, that personal touch. And just the fact that you're paying attention to it gives it worth, which they might not think is there. It gives it that impression that it's worth looking at, you know. I suppose then it it tips over into customer service as well, making someone feel valued and listened to and thought of.
0: mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also something that can contribute to having them want to um, take something home as well is yeah. because if they can see like, oh, actually, no, the person pointed out, I didn't realize that this thing that I did, it is actually quite good. And I'm yeah. actually quite proud that I did that little thing. Then it becomes something where, oh, it's not a perfect reproduction. But you know what, this is my reproduction, because yeah. that's my stamp on it. I'm it's really proud of this, mm-hmm,
1: this because, one bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because Definitely. you can just buy a reproduction, right? But
1: <laughs> Well, that's the thing. We're not uh, training photocopy as it is just meant to be a representation of what they're feeling at the time or what, you know, just happens on that night. And it's true. It's, it's having that element of just praise, which I think goes down very well. I know we've got that kind of cliched stereotype stiff upper lip thing, and that comes out with people not really liking to compliment themselves. I've noticed if you compliment them, they're more likely to then, you know, be like, oh, yeah, actually, I quite like this bit as well. But they'll often do it with the counterpoint of, I prefer this bit to this bit. There's got to be the negative side aspect to it as well. It's not just yeah. a straight out, I like this. I uh, find a lot of customers, it is, I like this, but I don't like this. And I think that says a lot about our kind of temperament as a nation.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's something that a lot of kids have where they can get really focused in on or anyone really can get focused in on the negative bit about it or what they see as a negative bit and then sort of miss out on actually what are all the positives, but also forget going back to like growth mindset, like this bit you might not like, but why don't you like it? And how could you improve that next time? Or actually, is there a way in which you could fix the error in in situ right so you don't have to do a whole new picture how can you actually fix this one that you've created nice little um acronym i've i've come across re- recently is to is the uh, whoop model and that's your wish your outcome your obstacles and then your plan so what is it that you wish the situation was so like i wish this was better and then you need the outcome so you become a bit more specific like what do i mean by i wish this bit was better What is it about it that I want to improve? And then the obstacle, what's holding me back? Do I not know how to mix the right kind of color? Do I need help pinning down? Is it a problem of size or perspective or proportion? Um, And then coming up with a plan, how, how are you going to fix it? One of the challenges also with this kind of a thing is keeping dissatisfaction with the product from becoming... Uh, an interpretation about your ability you start to see yourself as just oh I'm not an art person or you know math isn't my subject or I'm bad at whatever is there anything with with your workshops with how you break down those attitudes
1: um again it's just seeing what trying to have that psychological aspect of what you think they'll respond to because if they are this kind of I don't know slightly surly um, disinterested uh, I she, got so many other better things to do with my time type um, they possibly won't respond to the like you know positivity and enthusiasm that might kind of annoy them more somehow so Mm. I I think I kind of come in a, a little bit more gently and it is just that slightly more subtle enthusiasm or subtle positivity in a way that they're not going to find patronizing or just too much for their current mood or just personality
0: type mm-hmm. and i think being specific is again one of those things because that's that's a good point that you mentioned where like positive feedback can come across as really patronizing and kids they if they're not happy with something if you come in swoop in and be like well, that's great it's yeah. you know this is your own piece of work and blah 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 yeah. but it's it's can sometimes be counterproductive because they think, "Ah, oh, this guy's just saying that to make me feel better." I know that this is bad, yeah. and that's you need to again gauge like what is the correct level of positivity. And it's it's okay to not be happy with a piece of work that you do, uh, but again, it's about instilling that growth mindset. Can you can they see it as a learning opportunity? And then, as a facilitator, can you s- turn it, spin it around into like try these things? to 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 fix it so you give them a a way out you know a way to learn from the mistake and the experience
1: yeah definitely some people will respond to that praise and some people will want constructive criticism and help rather than that
0: yeah and and being specific in your feedback really helps in in terms of not seeming like you're being patronizing because you've you know if, if you are calling out specific details it shows that you're you're paying attention to the work that the effort that they have put into it so your positive feedback becomes more genuine in a way
1: yeah exactly i'd never want it to be fake i suppose is that artistic integrity or just honesty any any of the above i don't just want to be like yeah gold star gold star gold star especially with adults i definitely don't think they respond to that um picking up on the kind of specific things rather than just blanket you're amazing well done I think is useful with adults and children.
0: So let's, let's go back to, okay, so now we've, we've convinced them. Yes. We want to take this, this piece of work home with them. What do you do? So with, with um, old pieces of work that that you've done, do you ever go back and look at them? Like, do you use them for, uh, you know, beyond display, which is an important aspect of all of this, but is there anything else that you use those old pieces of work for?
1: Oh, interesting. Um. I suppose it's it's a chronicle of your development as an, as an artist. So I've got this whole portfolio with maybe my works since university to about now. And um, that that's useful to have because um I exhibit my work as well. And so it's useful to have a big collection of work so you can see these trends, if that's going to make a more interesting collection of work.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that we... You know, educators and teachers, we we do want kids to keep their work so that they can look back and see how far they've come. And it's yeah. it can be difficult because a lot of us, you know, we don't like to, people don't like to be wrong. You know, certainly that's true with me. So it can be mm-hmm. hard to look back on earlier bits of work and, and see all the ways in which you did things, quote unquote, wrong. If you've got that kind of growth mindset, that can become like a, wow, actually, I can see all the errors and mistakes that I've done in the past. And like that is a huge achievement. So the work, what does that say about the work that you're doing now compared to what you did then? Sometimes also you can spot, I do the same thing every single time. And then you can decide, is that just part of my signature work or actually is that something I want to work on?
1: Yeah, definitely. I was obsessed with photorealism as an art genre when I was going through school. And I was like, that's the highest form of art because I was like, you know, quotation marks, that makes you the best if you can do that because it's basically a photo. And um, so that was something I'd strive for a lot. I did a series of like cakes and donuts and it was all about having them as realistic as possible. And yeah, it, it was fairly, it's fairly nice to move away from that there is that element of, well, you could just take a photo, you know, so I, I've i been enjoying having my art look a bit more like artwork recently in, re- in recent years. So you do get that liberation of different, I don't know, your pieces of work reflect different stages of your life and where you are mentally and as a person.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the ways to develop that perspective in kids is to show them like portfolios of work so that they can see that no actually this is you can see these things there is a value in keeping um at least some of these old works you know old bits that you're you know at the time if you think i'm really proud of it keep it keep it aside and then you know next piece you think oh i'm proud of this keep that as well and then you know at the end of maybe a school year you can look back at the work that you've done over the course of that year Um, Any other final thoughts on encouraging people or kids to um, be proud of the work they've they've done and and take it home with them?
1: I suppose it's taking the seriousness out of it. It's something I try and do in life as well because I know I think I can take things too seriously. I can always be wanting to succeed or wanting to achieve or prove myself or something. Um, So it is just having that sense of fun and not taking life so seriously, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just enjoy it. You had a nice time. Like, well done, you. Go have a silly journey home and speak to strangers about this painting you're carrying around with you, you know? It is just encouraging that fun, I think, is very important.
0: Yeah, and I think that is something, like, if, if the memory associated with whatever the piece of work is is really positive, then you will want to keep it as, as a, a memory of that event because it was mm. so good. I think a lot of the work that we can ask kids to take home if we say to them like oh keep it as a memory of your day but if if they didn't put much effort into it there's not much to remember right there's no meaning or value attached to it
1: yeah they, yeah good point i suppose throughout the session it's our job or well, part of our job to encourage people to make an effort and then if they've made enough of an effort then as you say there'll be that attachment level to what they've created a little bit more than if you know we're less present throughout the events like we're always um encouraged to step away from our canvases and go and make those contacts with people and by doing that you are going to just yeah get a better result because it will now if you've done a good job in terms of kind of customer service and encouragement and teaching and facilitating um that will improve their experience they'll possibly put a bit more work into their painting and yeah be more likely to go home with it at the end of the night
0: well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me, charlotte. today. it's been it's been a great conversation,
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. always a pleasure, Victor.
0: Before the break, I was talking with Charlotte about how we can help people to take pride in their work as one of the strategies for making sure people take those pieces of paper home with them. Here are a few other ideas for how we can encourage people to want to take that stuff home. First off, make it relevant. So people might not immediately jump on wanting to do something, but if they at least buy into why the work that they're doing is important, they understand why they should want to do it, and over time, they they will develop that interest in it. An easy way of doing this is to give people choice. So instead of telling a class, uh, write down all the things that a fish needs to survive. That might not be particularly relevant to a class because they might not care about fish. They might not like fish. They don't have a fish tank. They don't have a pond. Why should they care about what a fish needs to survive? A different way of phrasing it could be. Choose an animal that you want to keep for a while to observe. What would you need to provide so that it can survive? So, in this, we've given them an element of choice. They can need to choose a type of animal. So, they might not care about fish, but they can pick an animal that they do care about. You know, maybe they've got a bird feeder up at their school, and so the kids are really interested in birds. You know, they don't have a pond, they don't really care about fish, but they've got a bird feeder, they see birds all the time, they might care about that. So that gives them an element of choice so that it's, it's relevant to them and the, their interests. Next, we've got this provision of like a scenario. So why do they care about what these animals need to survive? In this example, the scenario is they want to observe this animal for a while. And that means that, you know, they need to keep it happy and comfortable. So they need to know what it needs in order to survive. So there's a reason why they're thinking about the topic. Next thing, the work needs to be meaningful to them. So they need to have some kind of interest in the work that they've done. And here's something that I mentioned in the conversation with Charlotte is the amount of time that you put into producing a piece of work can really have an influence on how much that piece of work means to you. Using this example, if you've had kids just list things that an animal needs to survive, that activity can take one or two minutes. They've not invested very much in it, might not be very meaningful to them. Uh, if, however, you've told them, okay, draw a plan of the habitat that you're going to keep the creature in, this activity takes a lot more time. And so at the end, it can be it can feel a lot more meaningful to them. Another aspect of it being meaningful is that there's something that they can actually do with this potentially. So, if you've just got a list of things that an animal needs to survive, when you take it home, really, it's just a list of words. Um, but if you've drawn the plan of a habitat, it's a piece of work that they could display. They could put it up on their fridge. They could frame it, put it up on a wall. Or, you know, if they're really invested and they really like this idea, they've got this drawn plan. They could maybe make that habitat back at home using this plan that they've created. And so they've got this kind of internal reason for why they want to keep it. They think, ah, this drawing, I'm going to take it home. And then I've got a, a plastic container and I can make this habitat in this container. It's really meaningful to them. There's something that they want to do with this piece of work. There's a reason for them to want to keep it. Last thing to think about is that the work needs to have value. And putting work on display is a really great way of, of letting someone know that you value the work that they do. So if this is a kid who's drawn a plan of a habitat, you might ask them, oh, what do you want to do with this? You know, how do you want to display this when you bring it home? It lets them know that you value their piece of work if they know that, oh, you're going to give this piece of work space in the classroom or space in the house so that people can see it and appreciate it. You know, you value the effort that they've put into it. Another approach is, is the person going to want to actually do something with the work after it? Does it form part of a bigger project? So, for instance, in pond dipping sessions, a really common thing to do is uh, keeping a tally of the creatures that their group has caught, um, because that's something that you can do to estimate water quality. So there's this kind of scientific exercise. But if the tally is only going to be used during that session, you know, keep a tally of your work. We're going to talk about it later on. After we've talked about it in the session, if that's it, that's all they're going to do about it, why should they take it home? Why should they keep it? So this is where you might think slightly longer term, is that tally going to form part of some bigger project? So are you going to bring it back to school in order to do a graphing exercise? And then taking it even further, is that graphing exercise just gonna sit in their workbooks or actually is it going to be put on display maybe in the classroom or maybe displayed somewhere in the school? Are they gonna write a blog post about it that can go up on a class blog or a school blog? And so that tally of animals from a field trip, it has this life afterwards. So it has value why you should you should keep it for a while. And then you've got this wonderful end result that um, not only has made more use of that one piece of paper, so when it is eventually recycled, it's kind of been more useful, you know, it's less of a waste to recycle it, but also the learning experience has been much richer. That one piece of paper suddenly has linked into lots of these other things. So making work relevant and meaningful and have value to the person who's doing the work Uh, Not only does it mean that they want to keep their work, and so we as educators and as people who manage sites, we've got less cleanup to do with random bits of paper floating around, but it also is going to provide a richer experience and a longer lasting learning experience, which ultimately is what we want. So that brings us to the end of our discussion of how we can help make sure that people actually want to take home all these bits of paper that we hand out. If you've got any other ideas, things that your organization has tried and has really worked out well, I'd love to hear them. You can send us an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Tweet them to us at kn underscore podcast. And if for some reason you've forgotten something that we've talked about in the episode today, you can refer to our full show notes, which is available on our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.